Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery, BTR.org. I'm Anne. I'm sure you remember what it was like when you were searching for help, maybe for your husband, hoping to find the right program or therapist. That's why I started podcasting. I supported my husband through seven years of pornography addiction recovery, and not one therapist during that time told me I was experiencing emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion. I didn't want any other woman on the planet to be in the dark. If you're like the majority of my listeners, you're experiencing the type of abuse that's invisible and difficult to wrap your head around. Your husband is using porn or having affairs or lying to you, and you're getting the same bad advice about how to improve communication or your relationship. If you need support from women who totally understand, check out our daily group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a session today. One simple anonymous way to help spread the word is to click, follow, or subscribe to the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. While you're there, every five-star rating helps make this podcast more visible and will help save other women from getting the wrong kind of help, like a couple program that will make this type of abuse worse. For those of you who follow or subscribe to this podcast, thank you so much. Your support means so much to me. Here is a five-star rating that we recently received. She said, I'm so grateful. The sexual coercion, sexual abuse is so accurately addressed and was such a dark portion of my abuse that I feel and felt like I couldn't find help with. Finally, somebody gets it. I'm wow, just so validated right now. Thank you for that five-star review. And now to this week's guest. I have a member of our community on today's episode. We're going to call her Dee. She's 39 years old and she's been married for 18 years. She has two children who are eight and 10 years old. She's a mostly stay-at-home mom, but sometimes she works as an art teacher to kids at her church. She's taken up cycling as a form of exercise and it's been really helpful for her to be outdoors during this journey of healing. She also enjoys yoga and reading. She has struggled with anxiety and depression since a young age. And so she started therapy in 2018. And initially, she went to a mental health hospital for intensive outpatient therapy because her anxiety had become so debilitating. And there she met an abusive therapist and was his client in his private practice for 10 months. And she was his very first client at his own practice. And she's going to talk about her experience with this abusive therapist a bit today. So a lot of women who follow BTR or who listen to the podcast have gone to therapy for help, but when they went to therapy, it made the situation worse, and sometimes they didn't recognize it for a long time. In Dee's case, it was 10 months. So let's talk about your story. You go to this therapist. Did you know that you were his first client in his private practice? Yes, I did. And what made you, at the time, think this is a good therapist for me. When I was at the mental health hospital, we had a substitute therapist come in one day. It was a group therapy dynamic. And our regular therapist was out that day. And he came in as a substitute. And I had a side conversation with him uh, during a break. I appreciated his response and felt like he knew where I was coming from. And so, you know, whenever we left that program, they wanted you to be set up with a therapist outside of there so that, you know, you could continue your care. And he had mentioned to me that he was starting his own practice. And when our regular therapist came back um, the next day, I was talking to her about trying to find someone and 
I was considering going to a Christian counselor because I felt like that might be the right fit for me. She kind of discouraged me from going that route. She wasn't really sure if that would be the most helpful type of therapy for me. And I don't remember her reasoning now, but I do remember saying to her, well, this other person that came in said that he's starting his own practice. And she said, yeah, I think he would be a good fit for you. In that moment, I was still really struggling in where I was at. And it was really hard to just pick a person off of a list who I'd never seen, never talked to. And I trusted her opinion. I know that she was coming from a good place. I don't think she had any idea what I was stepping into. I just didn't even feel equipped to make certain decisions at that point. And I really trusted her, her opinion on that matter. Well, especially you've been in intensive outpatient therapy. So you're in a very vulnerable place at this time. Yes, absolutely. I've dealt with anxiety, but it became, when I say debilitating, I mean, I was barely sleeping. I had stopped eating even the last you know few days before I finally got into their care. It was just to a breaking point. And I knew that and I knew I needed help. I didn't know where to get that help. And I had heard of this place that was pretty close to me. And I decided that I had to do something and that just felt like the most reasonable next step. And I trusted that anybody that they had at their facility was somebody that I could rely on to be a safe place. Yeah, because why would you think any differently? That makes sense. In that first meeting, because your decision was based basically off that first meeting with him on the side conversation and then also her recommendation. Would you characterize that now looking back as grooming? When I say grooming, I also am wondering if the things he said to you, like narcissists, you know, I can't diagnose him because I've never met him and I'm just talking from your perspective, but they're very good at reflecting back what people are saying. So a lot of women who are dating narcissists or who meet them feel like, oh, this is my soulmate, right? They really understand me. So when I say grooming, I'm also asking like that side conversation where you really felt like, wow, he really understands what I'm saying. Do you see that part as grooming? Maybe not so much as grooming. I think I later on questioned if I was targeted for some reason, which is a difficult question to ask yourself because then you are asking yourself, well, what, what would make me a target? What would make me an ideal target for someone? Did he see something in me that, you know, he thought he wanted to exploit? And I don't know the answer to that, but that's something I definitely have asked myself. Yeah. And that's also a sort of a victim blaming type question, right? Like, um, because then you're like, what was it about me that made him target me? And and I don't think that's ever the case. I mean, just because you were in an outpatient clinic and just because you were vulnerable at the time doesn't mean that someone has the right to target you. It's still not your fault. A normal person wouldn't exploit that. They would have empathy, right, and want to be helping you rather than exploiting you. I wanted to feel validated because I know a lot of people that you talk to are coming out of a marriage or maybe still in a marriage or a relationship that's abusive, but I didn't have to keep going back. I didn't, I wasn't forced to have him as my therapist. 
and it's not to take away from anybody else's situation because I understand a lot of people do, you know, feel guilt and shame. But I think there's, for me, that's such a big part of what I've struggled with is that it feels like it would have been easy to just leave if something didn't feel right at one point. And instead of leaving at that first sight, I kept going. And it's hard not to feel like I played a part in it for a lot of reasons, but that being one of them, you know, I wasn't living with this person. I'm not married to this person. I don't have children with this person. I'm choosing to have them as my therapist and go back week after week and pay them. Listening to the stories on the podcast of other women who have had really difficult and traumatic experiences with a therapist, has that been validating for you? I think it's hard when it's not a carbon copy of what I experienced mm -hmm. because I tend to just feel like my situation is different and that their situation is, is valid for its own reasons, but maybe mine isn't because, because I just feel a lot of responsibility in what happened. So I tend to feel like other people are more valid in feeling traumatized in therapy. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully by the end of this podcast, <laughs> by the end of this episode, you can feel the love of all of the listeners letting you know that your trauma with this therapist is just as valid and that it is crazy traumatic to put trust in someone to help you and have that turn into destruction and chaos and pain. So let's actually talk about what happened. Maybe you want to define that first moment when you were like, something's not right. Even if at the moment you weren't able to verbalize it or you weren't able to like process what it was. When was the first time you recognized something is not right here? So this is one reason that it's hard to recount what happened because I feel like there were different aspects. Some of it was physical or Maybe there was gaslighting that was going on. And so these things sort of overlap and it's hard to give you a concrete timeline of when each thing happened, but they were happening sort of interchangeably. And so it all leaves you feeling so distorted. And when I left, I said it felt like I had been in a tornado and things were just swirling around me and it felt like pure chaos and I didn't understand what was happening. All I knew is that I was in a lot of pain. I think the first time that I can see, I now see it as part of a larger picture. At the end of a session, he put his hand up and had me put my hand up to his and he kind of wrapped his thumb around my hand and he said something cheesy like, oh, it's a hand hug. And I remember my next session saying to him, I was surprised he made any kind of physical contact. And I don't remember what his specific response was, but it was just sort of, oh no, it's fine. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I thought, oh, okay. I guess my idea of what therapy is, is very rigid and I've never been to therapy before. So, you know, the only therapy experience I had was at the mental health facility and I have never been to therapy otherwise. So I didn't really know what was okay and not okay and, and what therapy looked like. I mean, there's a lot of terms that I've come to learn since then. And if I had known them, 
maybe I would have left sooner because I would have had more of a definition for what was happening, but I didn't even have those terms yet. Because not only you don't have the terms, I mean, all of these victims, you don't even have the context for it. Yes. You have this like sense that something's not quite right. But then when you ask the abuser, hey, is this feels weird to me. And you get gaslit and said, oh, no, this is fine. This is what happens. This is normal. This is what happens in a marriage. This is what happens in therapy. Then you think, hmm, well, okay, maybe it's me. So you weren't telling anyone else what was happening during these sessions? No. There was a lot of shame that I felt, and I just think that compounds the secrecy of it all. You know, it makes you feel like you can't talk about it because you're ashamed of what's happening, and that's very isolating and feeling that, you know, you can't share with others what's going on and that you're confused about something. And in some ways, I feel like that's part of why it continued, because I wasn't talking to other people about it, not until right before I left his care, as I put that in quotations. So we've got physical crossing of boundaries. It sounds like during that session you were gaslit. Were there more types of physical crossing of boundaries? Pretty soon after the session where he had touched my hand, I was emotional a lot in therapy. I think I cried at just about every session. And I was upset about something that we were talking about and was emotional and he got off of his chair and came and sat next to me and he put his hand on the back of my head as he was talking to me. And I remember he stopped what he was saying and made a comment that my hair was soft. And I remember feeling really kind of nervous about that. And I started babbling on about something about, about my conditioner or something. It was just this really awkward response that I had, but it was just so out of the blue. And I remember he just kind of stopped me. And I thought, oh, okay, just take a deep breath, you know. In a following session, when I brought up that that had happened, he said, I didn't touch your hair. I said it looked soft. And I said, no, you were touching my hair and you said it felt soft. No, I, I didn't touch your hair. I just said it looked soft. And I had no question in my mind of what had happened. I knew what had happened. I was very confused as to why he would try to tell me it didn't happen. And again, at the time, I didn't know what gaslighting was. I just thought it was something really bizarre that he was doing. In the larger scope now, it makes more sense. But at the time, it was just weird. Did you ever think because he was your therapist, maybe he had a reason? I put a lot of trust into his discretion of, you know, what was okay and what wasn't okay. I think in in that situation, instead of drawing a boundary like I normally would have, you know, I don't sit alone with men having conversations about personal things. You know, I've been married now for 18 years and I've never felt like I would put myself in a situation where I could potentially violate some, you know, part of the sanctity of my marriage, you know. And so I think being in therapy and, and sitting in that sort of bubble that you have there, it just felt very disconnected from my actual life. It didn't feel like here's a man crossing a boundary and me being a married woman and me, you know, needing to say, no, this isn't okay. If that had happened outside of that room, I absolutely would have recognized that and 
again, wouldn't have even been in that situation to begin with. I wouldn't feel like that's appropriate to be having these intimate conversations. But I mean, that is the dynamic of therapy is to go and sit and talk about what what you're struggling with and having these really personal conversations. So I think it just kind of happened without it, it really striking me as something that shouldn't be happening. Real quick before a response, there are a lot of so-called betrayal trauma therapists or coaches or groups out there, but they don't approach pornography use or infidelity as an abuse issue, or they try to quote unquote treat both the abuser and the victim in the same setting, which is unethical. So if you hear something in this episode you relate to, check out the group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a group session today. Now back to our conversation. Here's a five-star review we just received on Amazon. So helpful and so simple. I decided to order this book after listening to the BTR podcast. I was so relieved that a simple rhyming book with illustrations was so clearly describing the total fragmentation of a relationship. After my kids heard a lot of arguing this week from a defensive dad arguing with mom to not have boundaries, my kids were asking me the next morning what is going on. I decided this book was simple enough to explain their dad's problem. I read it to my kids 9, 11, and 13, and they were so relieved to see a clear reason for the arguing. Their dad had to move out two months ago, and the page where the mom had to make the home safe for herself and the kids, my nine-year-old had a light bulb go off and said, so this is why dad doesn't live here. So it's peaceful and safe for us. Tears came to my eyes as I could be truthful with them. In addition to the story section, the images at the end, which discuss how to conceptualize the abuse present in relationships with so much deception and control, are so helpful. Thank you for your review. And now, back to today's interview. Well, I think our listeners can relate because we usually tell, I mean, we do tell therapist abuse stories like when the therapist doesn't understand or they don't validate or, you know, other therapist horror stories and also clergy horror stories on this podcast. In this context, all of our listeners can relate because that's how they felt in their marriage when they're thinking, well, this is my husband. So with another man that I met on the street, if he screamed and yelled in my face, <laughs> or if he lied to me about something I knew was wrong, then I'd be like, that guy's crazy or whatever. But in this, when it's your husband or when it's someone that you trust or when it's someone that you ha- you're supposed to have this safe, trusting relationship with, it's very confusing. You can't like wrap your head around what is actually happening in the moment. Now that you're looking back, what should therapy look like? I've been to therapists since then, and things that I don't feel are confused. I don't feel hurt by my therapist. I don't feel like they're ever lying to me or trying to make me feel bad. I feel supported. I don't ever feel like they're trying to cross any boundaries with me. I always feel like there's this extra kind of sense of your safety is my priority. And there was also just this really weird sort of issue for me with therapy when I was seeing him where I would feel really, really good the mornings that I would go, almost like I was on a high. It was just this sort of anticipation of going and and being in this place and feeling really good. And then when I would leave, I would feel really, really down and almost unable to wait that week until I could go back. And I had no idea the chemicals in my brain 
were such a big factor in that because when there's this sort of intermittent reinforcement going on, which did happen, you know, you would get this surge of adrenaline and all these hormones that make you feel good in that situation. And then when they're taken away, you feel really, really low and you just want to get that back. And I, I didn't realize that I was going through that storm. I just knew that I wanted to be there because I wanted to feel good. And sometimes it did feel really good. And sometimes it felt really bad and it shouldn't be this back and forth of good and bad. What am I going to get today? Am I going to get the nice therapist who's validating and makes me feel good? Or am I going to get the one that makes me feel guilty? Like I'm a bad person. I was talking one day and he just came and he sat next to me close enough that our arms were touching, but that was it just sitting next to me. And then, you know, a couple sessions might go by where there wasn't any crossing of the physical boundary. And then I remember he came over and he wrapped his arms around me. You know, he was sitting behind me and he kind of laid back on the couch because I would sit on this small little couch in his office and he wrapped his arms around me and held me. And I did feel an immense sense of comfort in that. And at the same time, he's telling me that this doesn't have to happen. We don't need to do these things in therapy. And okay, I'll do it this one time, but you know, this isn't really something that you should be needing from me. And so I had a lot of guilt. There's a lot of shame in that. And Again, maybe a couple sessions go by and one day I'm just sitting there talking and unprovoked, he comes and sits on the other end of the couch and I just continue to sit where I'm sitting and we're kind of facing each other from opposite ends of this little couch, more like the size of a love seat probably. And after a few minutes of me not really responding in any way, he said, you know, why don't you come lay next to me? And I did. And it was in a following session when I brought it up that that had happened. And he said that he had felt manipulated by me. And when he said that, you know, when someone says that it made their head spin, it literally made my mind just spin in circles because I thought, how did I manipulate you? I didn't ask you to come sit next to me. I didn't ask you to lay next to me. You asked me to do those things. And yet somehow he's telling me that I manipulated him. He made a comment that he cared more about me than his other clients, maybe a little bit more. And then he took that back and said, well, no, I just said that to make you feel better. And I remember being extremely hurt (laughs) And I don't use language usually. I don't cuss. But I remember when he said that to me, I told him, you don't lie to me. And that's not the wording that I used. But I just remember being extremely hurt and angry. And then as we're talking, he kind of settles things back down. And he's back to saying, well, okay, no, I do care more about you. I'm just trying to invalidate myself because I shouldn't feel that way. So that's why I said that. I do really care more, but I need to sort of deny that to myself to keep myself in check. And I'm on a roller coaster. I told him later on, I said, how am I supposed to know what's true and what's not true when you're telling me one thing and then the opposite? You're telling me you feel manipulated. It was so confusing. And I wish at that point I had walked away. I wish I had already walked away, but 
it's really hard to want to start over in therapy when you've laid all that groundwork and you've gone through some sessions where you maybe talked about some specific things that are really hurtful. And I remember there were a few sessions in particular that were really hard to get through. And I, I know that one, I felt an attachment to him. And two, I felt like I don't want to start over. I don't want to go to someone and have to do that all over again. I just want to go forward with where I'm at. And I kept telling myself that it would be okay. And it just kept getting worse. Did you ever think in terms of, now I realize you're being manipulated, so I'm not trying to victim blame or anything like that, right? So you're being manipulated. You're in this vulnerable position with an abusive therapist. Did you ever wonder to yourself rather than, is he abusive, right? Which was the correct way to perceive it. Did you ever consider, like, I'm having an emotional affair with my therapist? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so talk about that for a little bit. You know, I would come home and just feel like I had this really bad secret. Boundaries are being crossed, and I feel really shameful and guilty about that. And I remember trying to sort of dance around it and talk to my husband about it because I knew I was hurting, but I didn't really know how to get help for it, sort of emotionally isolated, like I wasn't really being understood. And instead of just really spelling out what I was feeling, I think because there was a lot of shame, I wasn't able to really communicate to my husband what I was feeling and what I was needing. And I think that just kept that cycle going. When did you start to recognize this is abuse? I think it's important to mention that early on, as a client, I did have his personal number because that was just the number that he used as his business. It was his personal number and his business number. And I was able to text him a few times when I was struggling and could reach out to him. And sometimes he would respond and sometimes he wouldn't. And he told me, you know, kind of be okay with it either way. If I respond, lucky you. And if I don't, then you have to accept that. I remember that was kind of the attitude of how that would go. And I remember early on, there were a couple of times where it was later at night and I was struggling with something and I would reach out and get a response. And, and a couple of times in particular, we ended up talking back and forth for a while and it became more conversational than therapeutic. And after one of the times when that conversation had gone on for maybe even an hour, he told me to delete the text. And hello, red flag. I wish that I had known how inappropriate that was. And I did. I deleted it. And then it happened again. Within a couple of weeks, that happened again. And at the end, hey, delete this text. And I did. And... There were comments made when I was in sessions. I remember him making a comment about his sex life, which is absolutely something that he should have never been talking to me about. He told me some personal things about his family, very personal things about his family, his parents in particular. Again, things that were not relevant to my therapy and never should have been coming up in therapy. He started letting my sessions go on longer than the allotted time. They were supposed to be right at about an hour or just under an hour. And it became normal for my sessions to be at minimum 
an hour and a half, two hours was pretty typical. We had one session that was about four hours. That was the longest. And I was only charged for an hour each time. And I remember telling him, I don't have my phone out. I don't know what time it is. So you tell me when our session is up. And I left that up to him. I left him as the person to tell me, hey, okay, it's time for us to end. And again, it became very normal for my sessions to go over an hour by quite a bit. And come to find out, because I have since read the Code of Ethics for Therapists, and that is completely unethical. And I didn't realize that at the time, just how damaging that actually is as a client. And also, again, confusing because some days if he would come in and say, hey, I only have an hour and a half today. And he would say it kind of in a cold way. And I remember in those times, it felt almost like a rejection, sort of this cold comment that he was making at me of, I only have this much time for you today. And I was just sort of at his whim. He told me multiple times that he was an empath and I was not. He said, he's an empathetic person and I am not. For a very long time, define myself as an empathetic person, sometimes to my own detriment. I feel very tender-hearted, and that's one of my core strengths, I think. And to sit there and have a professional tell you, you're not an empath, but I am. It really stripped me of part of my identity, of something valuable that I see in myself. But again, as him being this kind of authority in a way, I thought maybe he was right. I put a lot of value and trust into what he was telling me. And he also would make comments about, I'm the expert. See, my diploma's up there on the wall. You don't really know what you're talking about kind of comments. We get, we get that a lot. I'm a therapist, and so this isn't abuse. Either I'm not abusing you or your husband's not abusing you. This is just a communication issue or something. It's a story we hear a lot around here. I'm a therapist, so I know better kind of idea. But in this case, it was really used to keep you confused, to kind of throw you off your gut feeling about it. I think it just reaffirmed that he knew more than me. There was this air of, you know, I've been educated on this and you haven't. And that played into other things, too. I remember us talking about my job in education. I have a bachelor's degree, and I was talking about my teaching job, teaching art. And he said, well, as he's making a note in his little journal, you know, where he was keeping notes of my sessions, he said, well, I'm going to write down art facilitator because you don't have a teaching degree. And it just seems so unnecessary and hurtful, but I feel like there were a lot of times where there were just these little cut downs of, again, with the comment of he's the expert and it just, I guess it was devaluing me and maybe trying to keep me in a place of feeling like he was the all knowing authority. Who am I to question the expert? But also seemingly not just about therapy or therapeutic things, but giving you the impression that he's also the authority and knows more about your life. 
and knows more about what you need or how you feel. Do you know what I'm saying? Is is that sort of the feeling of it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> There's even something very specific, and this is pretty personal. I remember talking to him about a specific encounter that I had had in college that was pretty traumatizing. And here I was 19 years later sitting in his office just crying, like barely able to tell the story because it was a traumatizing situation. The aftermath of that was extremely upsetting and traumatizing to me. And I was talking to him about that experience. In that moment, he told me that my response was mean. He told me once that he didn't know if he'd ever had sex with the lights off. Like, what, you turn the light off when you have sex? And I said, well, yeah, usually. And he said, I don't know if I've ever had sex with the light off. And why was he telling me that? So your therapist was a sex addict. That sounds pretty typical of a sex addict. <laughs> you had a serious abuser slash porn user on your hands there. It's just hard to picture him in that way. That's how the wives are feeling about their husbands, right? Where they're like, what? No, he wouldn't use porn. You know? And I'm like, well, all the things you just told me he said are like classic classic markers. I think one thing that's really hard for wives of abusive men to wrap their heads around is that the women who they are having an emotional affair with, for example, or the women that they're having just a flat out affair with are also victims in many ways. Because here you are, I would say, accidentally participating in a emotional affair but not quite wrapping your head around what's going on and trying to tell your husband about it, not knowing where to go for help, continually asking your abuser, wait, is this right? Is this, this doesn't feel right. I'm confused. And him gaslighting you and telling you it's fine. And this is what's good for you. I think it's helpful for all listeners to understand that we need to be really gentle and empathetic with all victims of abuse, whatever form they come in. And in this instance, I'm bringing that up because he very well could have been married. Um, he was not, but he could have been, and he could have still been participating in this type of abusive behavior. Definitely. I feel like more often than not, of the stories that I have heard, usually they are. And he did bring it up when I confronted him, and I would like to tell you about that confrontation. Um, and I remember he got kind of a little emotional and upsetly said, imagine if I had been married. And I thought, well, I am married, you know, and just for him to say like, oh, just imagine if I had a wife and I was married. And yeah, well, imagine if I was married because I am. Yeah. The lack of empathy and understanding is, is astounding. So essentially, your story is a really tricky one because you've been manipulated and abused and been through this abusive experience and you are a victim but on paper and I'm not trying to invalidate you in any way shape or form on paper it's like an affair with your therapist more or less so I think that's why you're like it's so traumatic for you and it's so like you're processing like what happened and how did this happen to me and all of that because there's all of these, like you said, crazy, guilty, like I should have walked out. Why did I keep going? I'm a, I'm a like family person. I had no intent or desire to 
to do this with someone who's not my husband. So on this particular podcast, it just makes it very tricky because a abusive man might say, well, what could I do? She just manipulated me into kissing her as an excuse. So it validates you and validates other women who have been abused into, or I would say coerced might be the right word, but like basically coerced into a physical relationship that was totally inappropriate, that they didn't feel comfortable with, that they didn't necessarily consent to, but they're like finding themselves in it. It's almost like a form of rape. It's hard not to feel a lot of blame on myself. I want to tell you, too, about an organization that I connected with that should be mentioned on the podcast. You know, they told me it was never my job to make sure the boundaries weren't crossed. And that's been a really hard thing to accept. That's really hard to accept because I take a lot of responsibility and I continue to. But one thing that an unethical therapist might do is scheduling clients at the end of the day so that you're the last one there. Um, maybe the office is empty and also going over your allotted time. You know, if you're scheduled for 50 minutes or an hour, you should only be there for 50 minutes or an hour. And, but I also knew that because I was one of his first clients, he had a lot of extra open time. And I guess I felt privileged that I was being allotted extra time and not being charged for it and not realizing that that really isn't appropriate. Another thing is making physical contact. And that one's kind of, you know, the lines are a little bit blurry when it comes to handshakes and, and maybe even hugs because I've even had a therapist since then that liked to give me a hug at the end of our session. And I was comfortable with it. And, you know, she was a really sweet woman and I always felt like her intentions were pure but you know even that's kind of a gray area as far as if that's appropriate or not but particularly if it starts out as one thing and you start seeing it progress over time so for me that was initially just touching my hand and I felt like he knew that if that was okay, then I thought, okay, well, then that is okay. I put a lot of trust into him, but that progressed to him sitting next to me, him touching my hair at one point, him sitting close enough for our arms to touch, and then at some point him putting his arms around me and him asking me to lay down next to him. And unfortunately, on a couple of occasions, it even going beyond that, in the physical sense. And looking back, I can see how they were these sort of tiny incremental steps that didn't scream out at me. And obviously, you know, these things were not okay. When they're happening little by little over months at a time, it just, I don't know, I think it's easy to sort of excuse each step forward that it goes. You know, it's not like I walked in and at my first appointment, he was sitting next to me. That didn't happen right away. There were steps that even led up to that. What were you saying to yourself at the time while he's grooming you and it's slowly escalating over time, but not escalating like so it was really obvious? What were you thinking in your mind? I think there was a big part of me that just felt like I had a certain privilege that other people didn't have 
We are going to continue talking with Dee about her experience with being abused by a therapist next week. So please stay tuned for that. If this podcast is helpful to you, please help us reach other women by following or subscribing and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you for helping other women find us. If you've already purchased a copy of my book, Trauma Mama, Husband Drama, please circle back and give it a five-star rating. A lot of women are searching for books about betrayal trauma on Amazon, and rating Trauma Mama will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. Your donations keep this podcast going. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll to the bottom, click on Support the BTR Podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there 